Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Ginevra Lipton, developed fibromyalgia as a medical student, spent many years using herself as a guinea pig to try to find successful treatments, and ultimately became one of the few clinical specialists in the world to focus solely on fibromyalgia. Dr. Lipton is a graduate of Tufts University School of Medicine, is board certified in internal medicine, directs the Frida Center for Fibromyalgia, where she has treated thousands of patients with the condition, and serves as medical advisor to the Fibromyalgia Information Foundation. She's here today to talk about her new book, The Fibro Manual, A Complete Fibromyalgia Treatment Guide for You and Your Doctor. Welcome to HealthWatch, Dr. Ginevra Lipton. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So at the beginning of, of the Fibro man, Manual, you describe what it like is like to feel like when you have fibromyalgia, that um, it's really important for people to understand exactly what it is from a subjective perspective. Can you describe that briefly for, for our listeners? Yes, I think it's really challenging because people with fibromyalgia, they look okay. They might even seem like they're healthy, but on the inside, people with fibromyalgia can feel um, that that deep muscle ache that you get um, after you have like a flu um, shot, that sort of really tender muscle pain. But imagine feeling that all over your body. Couple that with fatigue and uh, never feeling rested in the morning after you sleep. Um, and, And also sort of a brain fog or cognitive dysfunction. All of that together, brain fog, unrefreshing sleep all over muscle pain. That's fibromyalgia. And you say that often fibromyalgia sufferers don't get help from their doctors and that research is is lagging far behind other conditions. Why do you think that is the case? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, it's primarily been an illness that has affected women. And I think because of that, um, and because people looked healthy, there was sort of a a neglect that happened where basically medicine said, you know, that's kind of all in their heads and there really wasn't the focus put on uh, researching fibromyalgia. So I think that's kind of one aspect. The other component is that really um, it was only very recently that we've been able to find objective or measurable abnormalities in fibromyalgia. Before that, it was always subjective, people reporting that they were having pain. But when we would do x-rays or lab tests, all of those came back normal. So the combination of people kind of appearing healthy and not showing up as abnormal in testing, along with primarily affecting women, I think medicine kind of neglected unfortunately, fibromyalgia up until about the last 15 years or so. Things are slowly changing. And you also mentioned that fibromyalgia is an orphan disease, which makes it harder to treat as well. What What is an orphan disease? It's a disease that really hasn't been adopted by any specialty. You know, in, in Western medicine, everything is kind of segregated into different specialties. So a neurologist is the one that's going to see somebody that's complaining of nerve pain or numbness or tingling. Fibromyalgia spans so many different specialties. It spans sleep medicine, rheumatology, neurology, and pain medicine. And because of that, none of those specialties really kind of um, has has devoted themselves to it. And unfortunately, because there hasn't been a lot of really successful treatments out there for fibromyalgia, there's not been a great 
momentum for any particular specialty to say, hey, we, we're the ones that are going to figure out and treat fibromyalgia. So that's what I mean when I say orphan disease. And so then folks like me who kind of specialize in fibromyalgia, we're sort of a little bit orphan doctors trying to kind of create a specialty where there maybe hasn't been one before. And then there's also some controversy over whether fibromyalgia is a syndrome or a disease. Uh, can you talk about, you believe it's a disease. Is that important that it's a disease versus a syndrome? I think that's a huge distinction. And I think the difference between a syndrome and a disease is that a syndrome is a collection of symptoms that we see that come together, but that we don't have an, a definable etiology or, or we don't know the cause of those symptoms. With a disease, we have, as scientists said, we know what's causing this constellation of symptoms. So for me, I'm really adamant that we do actually know what's going on in the body in fibromyalgia. So we can call it a disease. And in fact, when things are left in the syndrome um, category, it just leads to further neglect of that illness. So I, in my book, actually kind of say, you know, I know that still typically referred to, it's referred to as a syndrome, but I call it a disease or an illness because there is an overall uh, pathology that we have realized about fibromyalgia. But unfortunately, many physicians even don't know the science behind fibromyalgia. So I felt like a piece of what I had to do in this book was educate my fellow providers that we do know what's going on in the body in fibromyalgia, and we can use that to direct treatment towards successful treatments. And another, just to add an, another thing to the long list of, of things that make it a difficult diagnosis and, and a treatment plan is people with fibromyalgia also have a higher incidence of other diseases as well. Can you, can you talk about what some of those diseases are that might confuse the symptom picture and that actually coexist with some fibromyalgia sufferers? Absolutely. I think the biggest ones are irritable bowel syndrome, migraines, uh, peripheral neuropathy or other forms of nerve pain, um, mood disorders, depression, anxiety. All of those tend to be more common in people with fibromyalgia and can really muddy the waters. And you're exactly right. I think that's made it even harder to figure out exactly what is going on in fibromyalgia because when somebody comes to their doctor, they might be, in addition to talking about muscle pain, also talking about their headaches or the burning feeling in their feet or you know their intermittent constipation and diarrhea and abdominal pain and bloating. So from a physician who's got maybe 10 minutes to have an exam or, you know, office visit with that patient, it's really hard to narrow it down to what exactly is going on. We're talking today to Dr. Ginevra Lipton, the author of the Fibro Manual, a complete fibromyalgia treatment guide for you and your doctor. So you mentioned in the Fibro Manual that in 2002, there was a groundbreaking study that showed abnormalities in the brain, which I, I would imagine is part of why you could call this a disease versus a syndrome, that there were abnormalities in the brain and how the brain processes pain and fibromyalgia. And you suggest that the only way to see lasting results in the treatment of fibromyalgia with the fatigue, brain fog, and muscle pain is to address what you call chronic hyperactive stress response. So tell us what that is. So that is the underlying pathology of fibromyalgia that uh, I think warrants it being called an illness or disease. And 
this has been assessed in lots of different ways, and the science behind it is actually pretty. It's pretty detailed um, and complex uh, science. But basically, our brain, the animal part of our brain, has two modes: kind of safety mode or danger mode. And for the most part, most of the time, we should be in kind of the safety mode. And only if, let's say, a dog runs out in front of our car as we're driving down the street and we slam on the brakes and our heart is pounding, only then do we kind of get kicked into um, emergency mode. <clears throat> However, in fibromyalgia, what we've seen is that that emergency mode is kicked in all the time. So when we look at studies um, of brain activity, of nervous system activity, um, of how the body is responding to its environment. In fibromyalgia, consistently, 24 hours a day, it's sending out danger signals from the brain. And that leads to a whole host of problems in the body that ultimately kind of creates the whole picture of fibromyalgia. So are there multiple causes of this this chronic stress response? And on top of that, is there a higher incidence of, say, like a history of trauma for people who have fibromyalgia that might have put them in the stress response in the first place? Absolutely. There seems to be sort of a genetic predisposition, the same way, you know, diabetes can run in families, fibromyalgia can run in families. So there's sort of a genetic predisposition where the brain might be kind of set up or um, poised to develop fibromyalgia. And then there usually is some sort of triggering event, a trauma um, that can be either emotional or physical. Um, and that seems to kind of kick that part of the brain uh, that's doing the regulating between danger and safety permanently into the danger part. Um, and unfortunately, we've not figured out a way to kind of help the brain to ease back and uh, regain that balance in fibromyalgia. In my opinion, if we could figure out how to do that, we would have a cure for fibromyalgia. In the meantime, what we're left to do is try and figure out ways to limit the downstream negative effects of that uh, nervous system that's constantly stuck in that danger or fight or flight or stress response. So you have a, a treatment plan. Uh, you call it the four R's, and maybe we can briefly touch on each of the four R's. So let's start with rest. Uh, sounds simple, <laughs> right. maybe really difficult. Uh, tell us about the importance of rest and then how you walk people into a place of true restorative sleep and rest in their lives that it seems to be the cornerstone of a fibromyalgia treatment plan. So you can imagine that a nervous system or a brain that is constantly sending out danger signals, even while you're sleeping, is going to really interfere with quality of sleep. So what we see in fibromyalgia, and I experienced this personally, is you sleep, you may be getting sleep, but you're not getting into the deep quality sleep. So even if you sleep eight to 10 hours, you wake up feeling exhausted, your muscles hurt, you feel like you've been clenching your jaw all night. And what we see in studies, uh, sleep studies of people with fibromyalgia, is that we stay in the lighter stages of sleep, never really getting down to the deeper stages. And unfortunately, those deeper stages are the most uh, nutritious, so to speak, time of sleep. It's sort of like when you're getting your broccoli and all the nutrients. The, the lighter sleep has calories, but not really a lot of nutrients. So a huge component of treating fibromyalgia successfully is figuring out, number one, what other things might be interfering with people's sleep. 
And number two, how do we get your brain to soften and get into deep sleep? I've found that if you do relaxation activities just before bed, that can set you up for a a better probability of getting into deep sleep. And often this is where we do need to utilize uh, medications or supplements that can help kind of slow the brain activity so that instead of being in that um, hypervigilant state all night long, the brain is allowed to get into that deeper, slower sleep. Um, and that's a huge component. I would say that's what I spent 60% of my time in the clinic with folks working on is getting people into that deep sleep. So, so you mentioned, and you often use uh, sleep medications for people, but they're not all the same. Some of them are going to help you get into deep sleep and some sleep medications aren't. So could you parse that out a little bit for us uh, and maybe also mention um, what sort of protocols you would use for people who successfully do it without pharmaceuticals? Absolutely. So the, the big challenge is uh, that medications we often think of as being good for sleep or that are often prescribed as being good for sleep, um, things like the benzodiazepines like lorazepam, um, alprazolam, those medications actually are, have a negative uh, effect on sleep. So if you go to your doc and you're complaining of insomnia, you might get, let's say, a prescription for lorazepam that will actually keep you in lighter stages of sleep in fibromyalgia. So the first thing is kind of to make sure that you're not using any medications that negatively affect sleep. And then what I found to be more successful are the medications that are in the uh, GABA class of medicines. So GABA is the main calming neurotransmitter in the brain. So anything that can boost levels of GABA in the brain will help to calm ease the brain into that deep sleep. So there are supplements that um, kind of work on the GABA receptors. So some amino acids like GABA and glycine can help with that. There's some herbal um, supplements that do that. And then often this is where I will utilize um, some of the prescription medications we typically associate with fibromyalgia, gabapentin or precambolin. Um, those are kind of the base of, of what I do. Um, Magnesium also is vital for brain calming activity. So almost all of my patients, I put on a magnesium supplement at at bedtime. Um, So kind of with the supplements and or the GABA medications, that's where we start. And then if somebody also has issues, let's say with insomnia, like they actually just can't fall asleep, then I might add what we think of as a traditional sleeper medication like trazodone or amitriptyline all of which have actually been looked at in fibromyalgia and shown to be helpful. But what I found is that you might need to use them in combination. You might need a low dose of gabapentin plus a low dose of trazodone. And with that, that combination seems to be enough to overpower that really strong survival instinct the brain is sending out all night long. And you mentioned at the beginning of the the rest section that you also work on removing things that interfere with sleep. And you mentioned some sleep medications that interfere with, with good quality sleep. What are some other things that you would want to other, either medications that interfere with sleep that we might not think of or other activities that people should think about? So sleep hygiene, which every sleep doctor or physician will talk um, to patients about is basically just having good habits around sleep, you know, not drinking coffee after dinner and, um, you know, not watching a really scary movie right before bed, things that are basically helping your brain to ease um, ease into the habit of sleep. So definitely I work with folks on sleep hygiene. And then you want to make sure that there's no 
illness that's going on, no other sleep disorder that's interfering with sleep. The biggest one here is sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is where the soft palate is kind of closing off. Um, so you're not, you might be stopping breathing multiple times a night. That's a huge, huge stimulator of the nervous system. It's pretty common in men with fibromyalgia. About 50% of men with fibromyalgia also have sleep apnea. It's more like 20% with women. So making sure there's no other sleep disorder, making sure there's no medication or habit that's interfering with sleep, and then working with medications and supplements to improve quality of sleep. That's kind of the rest component of my treatment. We're talking today to Dr. Ginevra Lipton about her book, The Fibro Manual, a complete fibromyalgia treatment guide for you and your doctor. Well, let's move on to the second R, uh, repair. Uh, why is there a section called repair for fibromyalgia? What, what needs to be repaired? What needs to be repaired are those systems that are being affected negatively by a chronic fight or flight or danger response. And in particular, it affects our digestion. It affects uh, our kind of levels of inflammation in the body. And it really affects how our muscles and tissue are on a day-to-day basis. Because if you think about, remember that example I gave, you're driving down the road, you see a dog run in front of your car, you slam on your brakes. Part of what you do in that moment is you tense your muscles. So in fibromyalgia, that muscle tension is continuous. And it's not a conscious thing. You're not thinking about it. It's a reflex. So your body is continually tensing its muscles. And a huge piece of what we need to repair is actually to restore muscle relaxation. And in particular, I like a therapy called myofascial release, which is like deep, slow stretching that either therapist can do to your muscles or you can actually do it yourself. And that seems to really, the fibromyalgia muscles seem to really respond to that. And, and that's different than just deep tissue massage. And I, and I also remember, if I remember this correctly from the book, that it also is uh, confusing because there are people who use the term that aren't actually doing it. Is that, is that right? Right. And what, what I found is that deep tissue massage often doesn't actually help in fibromyalgia. It seems to almost irritate the muscles more. Um, I know for myself, if I get a massage, it actually kind of flares me up for a few days. And a lot of my patients report similar findings. Um, what, what we see with myofascial release is it's really more like deep, prolonged, assisted stretching where um, a therapist will have their hands on you. And it might take three or four minutes before they kind of get to that muscle stretch. So it's a little bit more like kind of pulling taffy. It's not kind of kneading. It's not that kind of um, movement. So it's slower than people think, but it's by far the most effective therapy I have found for pain relief for fibromyalgia. Uh, And in particular, there's a kind of within myofascial release, there's a specific type called uh, John Barnes approach to myofascial release. And that, uh, that is the one that I think I credit it with helping me get through medical school because I couldn't find anything that helped with pain. I really, I really thought I was going to have to leave school and, and, do something else or, you know, go on disability. I, I, I really, it wasn't until I discovered the importance of fascia and the connective tissue around the muscle that I was able to really gain any sustained pain relief. Yeah. And you mentioned repairing the digestive tract. And I'd love to briefly touch on that too, because I, I remember in your introduction about your own personal story, 
when you uh, did a blood test for food allergies, I believe that was a big turning point for you in terms of uh, improved well-being. Uh, is that what you mean by repair for digestion or do you mean something else? That's a component of it. And I have to say, I have the, I have a naturopath to thank for that. So um, I'm eternally grateful to the naturopaths of the world. Uh, so what happens with that kind of fight or flight constant danger signal, it really impairs um, the digestive capacity. So we see people with fibromyalgia don't make as much digestive acid, acid, so they're not able to really break down the food into its tiniest little components. And what that leads to, unfortunately, is um, a high probability of food sensitivities and leaky gut. And I'm sure you've talked about leaky gut before on your um, show, but basically it just means that there's kind of, it's a more porous gut than it should be. So more food particles and other foreign things are getting in to the bloodstream and activating an immune response. So for me, when I got that blood test and I found it was a few simple things that I was eating all the time, like dairy, once I pulled those out of my diet, my inflammation levels really, really dropped. And so did my pain. Then I was able to really work on trying to restore and repair my body's ability to really tolerate and break down dairy. So now I can tolerate it, but only because I've done work to uh, repair my digestive capacity. So that's that's another huge component I work on with patients. And what is the blood test or blood test that you advocate? So I don't advocate one in particular. I think there's lots of different ways to look at allergies or food sensitivities. Certainly, um, I like the blood tests that look at the as broad a picture as I can. So the one I like looks at white blood cell activity. It's called the ELISA-ACT leukocyte uh, reactivity assay. But I think some of the IgG and other blood tests can be helpful as well. The key to keep in mind is that all of those food sensitivity blood tests only really look at a portion or one section of the immune system response to food. So you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt and, and kind of know it might not show you every food sensitivity, but each of them give a pretty good overview, I would say. And how do you deal with uh, exercise with your patients? There's a lot of research on exercise being beneficial for fibromyalgia sufferers, but it's a hard thing to get people with fibromyalgia to do. So how, what what is your thought process on advice when it comes to therapeutic exercise? Well, first of all, I tell them to throw the word exercise out of the vocabulary and replace it with therapeutic movement because the muscles need to move. But exercise, particularly as we think of it in our culture, is sort of, you know, 30 minutes of spinning or, you know, really running or aggressive exercise, that that does not feel doable to most people with fibromyalgia, nor to me. I mean, in medical school, when my doctors told me, well, you know, exercise, I was like, you have to be kidding me. I feel awful. I mean, it's like telling somebody who has the flu, you know, you should get up off the couch and go for a run. That'll help you feel better. So I tell people I have to kind of reset their expectations and say, you know, we just need to get the muscles moving. We need to get your blood flowing. But first we need to get you sleeping. So that's why the rest component comes first. And then in the repair section, after you've worked on kind of restoring digestion, working on improving your muscle health with myofascial release, 
then you can start doing gentle, gentle therapeutic movement, starting with a really good warm-up, and then maybe doing two or three minutes of a gentle exercise to the point that you might not even break a sweat. And then you do some stretching, and then you call it done for the day. And you look at it as medicine, not as a cardiovascular workout. And then you slowly build up. That's how I found it to be doable and effective for people. Um, the warm-up piece is really important. Our muscles with fibromyalgia are tight and tense. And if you just go right into uh, exercise, we're more prone to injury and hurting ourselves and setting off a flare. If you do a really gentle, slow warm-up where you're moving each of your muscles kind of through their range of motion, um, almost like a slow kind of yoga build-up to exercise, then you can actually tolerate exercise more. And for me, that was like the magic key. Once I figured out that I needed to warm up before exercise, all of a sudden I could tolerate it and I was getting benefit from it. And it was like my aha moment, like, oh, but wait, why is nobody expressing that to patients? So I have a whole chapter in my book that's just about how to warm up for exercise. And mm -hmm. I did a whole video that's on my clinic site because it's so important. And, and one last question, unfortunately, I wish we had another half hour so we could go more in depth, but can we just touch on pain medications? Um, you mentioned myofascial release as a specific type of, of therapy that's particularly beneficial, but if someone's um, going towards um, either supplement or medication, what are the ones to avoid and the ones to consider? Well, that could be a whole another 30-minute uh, talk. The way I kind of explain it to people is right now, we don't actually have great options for fibromyalgia pain management. We've got some pretty decent ones that can work for a while. So the opiate pain medicines, I think they're useful if they're used just as needed for flares, not every day. Then they can still be a very viable, useful tool. I think anti-inflammatories can be useful on an as-needed basis, but if you're taking them every day, they can actually worsen leaky gut and digestive issues. Uh, I really like topical pain medications. There's topical anti-inflammatories, um, and even some of the newer kind of cannabis-based topicals can be really helpful. Just apply it on, onto the muscle directly. Um, then you limit a lot of the systemic side effects. I think in the future, in 10 years from now, if you ask me that question, I might have a prescription cannabis that I could recommend, but right now it's it's pretty not very scientific. But I think cannabis as a whole holds a lot of potential for fibromyalgia treatment down the road. And do you have a website you could point our listeners to? Yeah, the FridaCenter.com is the website of my clinic, and then Fibromanual.com is my book website. Fibromanual? Mm-hmm. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Lipton. David, thank you. We're talking today to Dr. Ginevra Lipton, the author of The Fibro Manual, A Complete Fibromyalgia Treatment Guide for You and Your Doctor. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.